Welcome to Creative Entrepreneur Buzz Podcast, hosted by Tony Marchanti and Molly Pompadit. CE Buzz helps creatives sharpen their entrepreneurial mindset so their businesses can launch, grow, and collaborate. Now, let's start the buzz. Hello, welcome to Creative Entrepreneur Podcast. We are definitely excited today to be sharing a wonderful guest with you. This is Molly Pontedith, your host. Uh, Tony Marciante, my sole brother and co-host, will not be joining us this morning, but he will be um, joining us very soon on the next episode. So this morning, I wanted to basically take some time to introduce our wonderful guest, who I had the privilege of meeting, not physical yet, but virtually through a dear friend of mine. Um, Our guest is Greg Lavoie. He is an author and speaker. Uh, Greg is the author of Vital Signs, The The Nature and Nurture of Passion, Um, and he's also the author of Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life. Um, You know, I wanted to also let you know that this gentleman has been traveling basically all over the world. He's uh, considered the top 20 um, career publications by the Workforce Information Group. Um, He's also spoken at organizations like the Smithsonian Institute, the Environmental Protection Agency, Microsoft, American Express, the list goes on and on, universities, banks, you name it. He's considered an amazing lecturer and seminar leader in the business world through educational organizations, governmental, faith-based, and human potential arenas. want to welcome you, Greg, to the Creative Entrepreneur Buzz podcast. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So I am very curious to learn how you got into the storytelling, the sharing, um, getting on these big stages to talk about personal callings and finding and following this authentic life, passion, all of those things. How did that evolve into what you're doing today? Well, I have always had a lifelong fascination with how it is that people create a life that truly belongs to them and isn't a knockoff. And I think part of it was growing up with two parents, neither of whom really, I think, did what they wanted to do. They chose the security route over the passion route, which I think is a primary drama for a lot of people in their relationship to these issues. Um, And I also grew up on Ritalin. Mm. Now, that may be a strange um, biographical piece to add in here in response to your question, but um, I had a, I, I mentioned this because I had an interaction at a workshop a week ago in Chicago that, so this is fresh in my mind. We were talking about something that um, Larry King had been asked in an interview, who makes a great guest for your show? He said, you've got to be funny, you've got to be articulate, self-deprecating, and you've got to have a chip on your shoulder. (laughs) And so one of the questions we were dialoguing about was, um, and not that I'm encouraging people to to nurture their grudges, but I wanted to acknowledge that having a chip on your shoulder is also a form of passion and can motivate people to tremendous action, righteous action, um, even righteous anger. And so I described that I had been raised on Ritalin. My parents apparently slipped it into my morning milk. Wow. I know. I didn't find this out till I was in my mid-30s, and you can imagine how I must have felt, um, finding out that I'd been drugged for a good portion of my childhood. But, um, and I, I talked about having a chip on my shoulder about having my natural energies suppressed. And a woman in the front row said, well, you know, Greg, it probably explains both of your books. <laughs> Yeah. You know, in the sense that um, that's one of the motivating factors for wanting to write about how people keep a hold of their natural exuberances and energies and passions and vitalities is that that's that's part of the bio for me. So it's part truly part curiosity from from your part on your end Mm. Um, and I was reading that as one of the excerpts of your um, of your book that was on your website I found it really fascinating by the way this concept of wonder and curiosity so you just kind of confirmed for me 
um, with that story just now, that it really is uh, sharing this is also part wonder and curiosity for you. Mm. And now part sharing the fact that you're absolutely living it because it's taking back, you know, the passion in your life and your authentic self. So I commend you for that. (laughs) I also um, was listening to you earlier about this concept of security over passion. And I do believe that many of us choose that based on environment, social, um, also the way that we're nurtured, maybe. I mean, for for me, I came as a child refugee of war. My parents came here with nothing. And Mm -hmm. they really did um, you know, do the best that they could. And there was a lot of fear around whether we were going to survive and make it. And as a little girl, and even with my siblings, you know, we basically became parents right away. And our whole life was based on what was going to keep us and the family safe. So security became our driving force. At least I can speak for myself. It became my driving force. Right. And, um, you know, I really resonate with that because it wasn't until I was 35 that I finally decided, um, you know, that security wasn't everything. Mm. There had to be passion. There had to be purpose. There had to be not just the left side of the brain always playing it safe and being analytical and completely logical all the time because life isn't full and complete if you're not your full self. And so that's where the passion piece is. I'm so glad that you're on the show today is, you know, a part of my life's calling now is to help people find their passion and purpose, which Mm -hmm. is exactly what you're doing. Oh, that's wonderful. So let's talk about this because that's one of the key points is, you know, this tug between the war, you call it the tug of war between passion and security. Let's dive deeper into that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I hear stories like the one you just shared, I, I just, I offer a generous and obedient bow to what people are up against. You know, a story like yours explains one reason why people are so, uh, put security so high on their list when you come from a situation like that. So I understand it and I, and I, uh, and I appreciate what it is that I'm asking and what you're asking people to do by um, taking their passion back. Um, to at the very least balance out the equation between passion and security. Now, unfortunately, I, my ob- general observation is that in that, that tug of war between passion and security, security tends to win. Hmm. Yes. Passion tends to get backburnered. Um, and sometimes for people, it gets backburnered for decades. But the thing about it, the beauty and the curse of it is that it doesn't go away. Our, our vitality, our sense of aliveness, whether it's vocational or creative or relational or anything else, um, the search party doesn't retire. <laughs> I love you that. Know, <laughs> you know, we may give up, but it doesn't give up. And this can be marvelous and wonderful and life-giving, but, but it can also be incredibly inconvenient. And also very, um, sometimes holds us back deeply, you know, that, that, that feeling in our gut, the, the passion that won't go away, the vitality that keeps coming back and saying, look, I'm not satisfied here. Something is wrong here. You know, you're not paying attention to me. And then you feel some people don't know how to pinpoint what it is, but it's inside of us. I mean, we're human beings and it comes innate within us. Would you agree? Absolutely. We're, we're all born with exuberance and vitality. And it's only in the process of um, being parented and schooled and gendered and bibled and everything else that we slowly um, get it chipped away. Uh, but it doesn't ever go away and will try to pop through until the last possible minute of life, in my opinion, in my observation mm-hmm. and my experience. Um, so, so this is one of the reasons why I think one of the most brilliant things I ever ran across speaks right to this. It's that heroism or heroinism, can be redefined for the modern age as the ability to tolerate paradox. In other words, to hold two seemingly contrary ideas or impulses like passion and security, or us and them, or faith and fear, inside us at the same time and still retain, you know, sort of retain the ability to function. And, uh, and I think just holding that both of these are true you know, um, I I think mitigates against tyranny, not just inside yourself, but between us and other people, because tyranny is just elevating one principle and suppressing others. Right. And if we do that within our own psyche, we're going to do that elsewhere. And so hold the truth of both of them. Security is good and passion is good. 
and they both coexist. Us and them is good. Um, you know, just to to hold these, my will, thy will. You know, any of the dualities need to be honored and brought together to dialogue with one another, rather than retreating to to the opposite ends of the boxing ring. Well, I wanted to um, to share this because when I went on your website and I was looking through and learning more about you, um, and for those that are listening, please check out the website because there's tons of amazing, inspiring information on there. I wanted to just read this quick um, excerpt from the book. It was from Chapter 4, and it speaks to this um, love and passion. I know we're talking about love and security, but, you know, it's it's really, really relevant, right? And I wanted to read it because I want the audience to hear your perspective on this, and I think it was brilliant, um, and then have you speak more to it. Mm. So what you say here is relationship will always be both safe harbor and storm, will always challenge us to burn without being consumed, to have and to hold without possessing. And love and passion will always be difficult to uphold in partnership because they work toward different goals. Love wants assurances. Passion wants abandon. Love wants to be soothed. Passion wants to be stimulated. Love wants to go steady. Passion wants to be swept away. (laughs) Another way of saying this is that it's critical to be able to feel ambivalent about love and yet proceed with it. Mm. Wow. Mm, Thank you. Entrepreneurs are always on the go, but even we have downtime while we're driving, working out, or waiting for that next appointment. How about filling that time with some awesome audio content? Audible.com provides that. Get a free audio download and support the show by going to creativeentrepreneur.buzz/audible. This is the universal truth, is it not? <laughs> you know, people don't really learn much about love. And that's one of the reasons why my unofficial mentor, Leo Buscaglia, is Uh someone who is like born and lives in my heart. And he actually fought for teaching love at universities. And one of the things I learned from this great mentor of mine, and I feel like your spirit is very similar to his, is the concept of we don't know how to love because it's never really officially taught to us. <laughs> we kind of fumble and fall and try this out and nobody knows how to mentor it because nobody really knows how to love. <laughs> I think this explains why one of uh, I mean Leo's course at U- University of Southern California was the best attended course at that university. Yes. We need it. We long for it. Shows how hungry people are for it. Um, And I remember when I was in school, I remember, and I'm sure a lot of students probably go through this, is um, that what I was being taught didn't seem um, particularly relevant to me a lot of the time. I thought, why am I learning trig? I'm never going to, I want to be a writer. I'm never going to be using trig. But how often am I in relationships? Why not relationships 101? Right. Why not how to be a green consumer? You know, how about independent living? You know, I mean, just there are so many things that would have been relevant, and I think love and relationship was definitely one of them. And of course, what we know of it, we are, we learn from, you know, sort of at the altar of our parents' relationship, which isn't necessarily a good model. Hmm. And and so here we are as grown-ups, and we have to try to make our way through it. And again, I think that the skill of holding paradox is a great skill to have in a relationship, you know? There are my needs, and they're absolutely uh, honorable and, and, and to be respected, and there's the other person's needs. And, and we have to figure out ways to make them both work. You know, there's, there's the desire for safety and security in relationship, and there's the desire for passion and abandon and, and uh, you know, to be stimulated, if not inflamed. And they're both true. Wow. What defeats passion? I'm sorry, say it again. What defeats passion? Oh, boy. Oh, life on planet Earth. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, this, this, I mean that there's so many forces that work against exuberance and authenticity uh, that y- y- sometimes you just don't even notice it. It's so pervasive. I mean, in fact, I think that what we casually refer to as normal behavior is really a state of arrested development. It's just, it is just so pervasive, we often don't even see it. And 
stress works against it. Boredom works against it. Fear certainly works against it. Um, a code orange world, a great recession, a routine, responsibility. So I, I just, I, I think sometimes it just really helps to step, just a step outside the status quo of your life and just to look at where do I lose vitality on a day to day basis? What drains it? Um, socializing out of guilt. Uh, trying to do my own taxes when I stink at it and should farm it out. Uh, <laughs> subjecting myself to driving in rush hour traffic when I don't need to. I'm self-employed. I'm an entrepreneur. I do not need to get into rush hour traffic anywhere. Why do I do this? Um, I've been experimenting with one recently. Uh, I have a little habit of letting a negative or worrisome thought be the first thing that goes through my mind when I get out of bed in the morning. In fact, it's usually what propels me out of bed is uh, it's not an alarm clock because I'm self-employed and in this case, I don't need an alarm clock. But what gets me out is a thought about something I got to get done today, something I should have got done yesterday and didn't, uh, some looming deadline or just even an irritating noise outside the window. And I realized, wow, usually when my feet hit the floor in the morning, it's accompanied by a negative or a worrying thought. So I'm experimenting in the last six months with a, with a new approach to this way that this energy leaks out of me on a daily basis. And that is that I'm lying around in bed waiting until a more affirmative thought crosses my mind and only touching my feet to the floor on that note. Wow. So, you know, an upswing rather than a downer, but it actually, it helps me. It definitely helps my day uh, start off on a better foot, literally. Isn't it fascinating that when you get to a place in your life, you can really start to create those either habits or tweak your thoughts, really be more present and more mindful to where you are, the negative mm -hmm. feelings, because so much of our life, we don't spend listening to that internal voice or the internal calling or the feelings we have. Mm -hmm. And now we wake up and we realize, wait, it doesn't have to be this way. I woke up, woke up on the wrong side of the bed, but that doesn't mean I have to leave <laughs> the bed on the wrong side, right? Oh, Just right. pausing for a few minutes and saying, I don't like this feeling. I, wanna, I don't want to start my day this way. I don't have to be this way. I don't have to go in and, and create a routine or create a, a vicious cycle of a horrible day just because I woke up believing it was going to be a horrible day before the day even began. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think that you, I think you used the word mindfulness earlier. I, I think that is so key. It's just paying attention to whatever is up, but, but having a, a kind of a part of your consciousness whose sole job description is just observe and uh, tell the boss, mm -hmm. you know, what's going on. Just a sort of a, a more of a daily version of quarterly reports. Right. You know, I and uh, oh, I just think that is, um, I remember, you know, Gene Houston, does that name ring a bell? Gene Houston. Um, Houston is a mythologist and a psychologist and an author and a brilliant thinker. And she wrote a book called A Passion for the Possible and the Possible Human. And um, she said that people who are described as larger than life are not that way because they're physically imposing or something or, or you know, leading revolutions or charismatic and heroic or whatever. They're larger than life because, as she puts it, they're profoundly present to the stuff of their lives. They really, they're mindful, they pay attention, they use their senses a lot more than most people, they inhabit their minds and their bodies more than most people, um, but they really pay attention and acknowledge whatever is up, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, passion comes from a word meaning to suffer. So it's not just about exuberance. It's not just about, you know, all the positive uh, emotions. It's also the darker ones. Um, you know, having a chip on your shoulder or anger or sorrow or grief or, you know, this is also part of passion. And being larger than life is being profoundly present to whatever is on the radar screen. And I think you're touching really upon what the next question is, is what inspires passion, right? And we just basically talked about being profoundly present. 
is definitely key. What other things with your observation and you know all the travels that you do and all the teachings that you do, what inspires passion and what keeps it sustainable in oneself and in the community around us? Yeah. Um, well, I think one thing that certainly helps it is having a working relationship with it and not backburnering it all the time. You know, having a, a, a working familiarity with where your passions reside. And I don't mean even the big vocational ones like, uh, you know, I should be self-employed rather than employed uh, or I love this arena rather than that one. But the little small daily stuff is where I encourage people to address these issues um, is to look for what are you fascinated by? To look for who do you love spending time with? You know, to look for uh, where do you experience wow? Hmm. You know, just to look at all the little ways where passion and exuberance and vitality kind of well up to the surface and start there, you know, rather than thinking, oh, I've got to follow my passion, i.e. quit my job and set up my own business or something to that effect. I mean, that's certainly one version of uh, what inspires passion is doing work we love. Well, I tell you, Greg, I think that's also one reason why people stop and they don't pursue their passion because this assumption or this pressure around society and even in the business world that if you pursue passion, it means you have to jump out there and become an entrepreneur or go ahead and be self-employed. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is meant to be that way. Not everybody is created or is their, their track or their path is meant to go out and be an entrepreneur. Right. You know, living passionately doesn't mean that you have to go out and build your own business or empire. Living passionately could mean that you walk to work every day with your head held high, creating a community of people because you love to be around your team mm. and shifting the energy of your organization so that everybody is moving to the same vision and mission. And you can be a true, you know, on the mindset level, true entrepreneur and still have passion for your life. It's not just about work. And that's especially in the U.S. on the, on, you know, here we do think about passion and our purpose and it's very tricky because all this defaults around business and work all the time and it's not about that to live mm -hmm. a full life is everything every aspect of our life oh boy absolutely in fact um i i look uh, uh, toward my mother uh, as an example of part of what you just described is this uh, this uh, focus on work life and the lack of work life balance um, a work non-work balance, I should say. She she was uh, one of the first women on Wall Street back in the early 1960s, and um, she worked uh, most of her adult life, and uh, she was quite passionate about it. But it was uh, primarily about work. Um, and when she retired, she just went down the tubes. Wow. And I think I wonder how many people have this experience when they retire that they discover that they had a, a kind of a core of depression in them that was just being held in check all those years by busy lives. And when the busy lives stop or even just, you know, slow down, the depression comes to the fore. And I think part of that was it can be the lack of creating balance in your life so that you have not just work but non-work modes of expression things that you're passionate about that aren't just about work. Uh, and not just because it'll help you when you retire, but because it'll help your relationship with your partner, your relationship with your children, your relationship to your health. Um, you know, I just think this obsession with work is, is really uh, dysfunctional and detrimental to our health. Entrepreneurs are always on the go, but even we have downtime while we're driving, working out, or waiting for that next appointment. How about filling that time with some awesome audio content? Audible.com provides that. Get a free audio download and support the show by going to creativeentrepreneur.buzz/audible. I would absolutely agree. Well, Greg, I'm going to shift just a little bit here and talk about the creative side of being an entrepreneur because we are called the Creative Entrepreneur Buzz Podcast. So, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about being self-employed. You talked about being a true entrepreneur. Um, that doesn't come easily um, mm -hmm. for a lot of people. And a lot of our listeners are thinking about it or just in the process of or have launched their business. And it's a creative business. It's visionary. 
Um, and now it's like, okay, how do I get the support that I need? What's next for me? How do I grow? How do I expand? When you decided to move in this direction full-fledged, have you always wanted to be um, an entrepreneur or did you stumble upon it? Did you basically put it on a vision board or a mission statement <laughs> and said, I'm going to do it? Uh, no, no, I, I wasn't anywhere near that well planned out. <laughs> uh, I, uh, no, I, I stumbled on it in the sense that I was a reporter. That's my professional background. That's right. Um, so I was a reporter for uh, the Cincinnati Enquirer in USA Today. And uh, I worked for those papers for eight or ten years before I actually was more, it was closer to five out of the ten years until I realized I really want to do my own thing. I don't want to be assigned stories. I want to do the kind of stories I want to write. I want to write more nationally and internationally than locally and regionally. Um, and I wanted more freedom. I wanted the free and freelancing. Uh, and, uh, and it was only when I uh, really quit and became a freelancer that I realized how, how utterly constitutionally wired I am to be self-employed. And, uh, but uh, I knew that I was unhappy, I think, being, being employed pretty early in the game. And what I did to prepare for entrepreneurship was a couple of very particular things. Um, one of them is I think that you, you kind of have to really listen in for when this felt shift happens inside you where you make the decision, an inner decision, this is, this is the life I have to live. Um, that it's, it's like the difference between if and when, mm -hmm. you know, it's, and, and you'll feel it. Uh, I remember John Stewart was interviewed um, by Dan Rather years ago. And at one point, Dan Rather asked him, what was your big break? And he said, when I made the decision that this was the life I was going to live. So that was one piece. It's just to, I, I, was, I was paying attention to that, sh that sense of inevitability, that ripeness, that shift that said, I, I feel ready. And then what I did when I felt ready was I committed to one year of Thursday nights to become a student of the life I wanted to live. Every Thursday, three hours from six to nine when the library closed, I knocked off of work. I took myself out to dinner. That was an important part of the, the um, supporting myself process. I took myself out to a dinner that had tables with, um, uh, you know, um, tablecloths on them. Because mm. uh, I wanted to be a reward and I built the reward into it. And then I went to the public library and I studied the freelance life, the life I wanted to live. Um, I read books, I wrote stories, I queried editors, I built contacts, I did informational interviews with people who were doing what I wanted to do. And I know there must be a better way of saying this, but I picked their brains. Right. What do you like about it? What do you hate about it? How, how did you get into it? How long did it take? What do you wish somebody had told you? All that kind of stuff. And I one, the, one last piece is I, I created a... Um, a journal of this process of becoming an entrepreneur, a self-employed person. I just went to um, Office Depot and I got a big ring binder. And over the course of the almost two years that it took me to be se become self-employed, I just filled up that journal with to-do lists and dreams and drawings and informational interviews and fortune cookie messages and anything that, that was supported the campaign and on a couple of occasions when I really used that journal was when I came to a grinding halt and I was overcome by the doubt, uh, not just mine, but other people's. And I would thumb through this journal and I would look at it and I go, you know, I have literally taken thousands of individual steps toward making this happen. There's no way I'm going to quit. And that was the effect of this journal on, on the work on two or three particular occasions. It reminded me how far I had come. And I just think sometimes half of success is simply noticing it. <laughs> you, you shared some powerful points. And, and I want to kind of reiterate what you said here because, you know, we have these big dreams before we launch our project or go out on our own and become this entrepreneur, this freelancer, whatever name that, you know, you feel comfortable with mm -hmm. is 
the hard work that it takes. It's one thing to know and feel that you're ready and say it and say it over and over again. It's another thing to actually get out of bed and go do it. These little <laughs> action steps, the one thing a day or the one day a week yeah. to get a goal accomplished. And that goal could be like you. It took about two years and you basically went out full-fledged and launched. It could be writing a book. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because for me, until I actually had a goal or a plan it took me, it would have taken me years and years and years. It already was taking me five years to launch my memoir. But mm. when I actually dedicated every Tuesdays as my sacred writing day, mm. within less than a year, that book was published. And yeah. it made a huge difference. And so I'm sharing this and I'm reiterating what you say because for our listeners, it's important to take the action and to commit to something and create a habit around it because as a highly creative person too, without that action, without the steps, without the tactics, the logic and the practicality in your creations, you know, then they're just these, again, these pipe dreams or these big ideas that never come to form into something of reality. So yeah. I want to reiterate that because what you're saying really validates the work that it takes. You know, it's not just you dream it and then all of a sudden it happens. Oh, I think there's a reason the statistic is, uh, at least it was about 10 years ago when I last looked, that something like 75% of all those who go into business for themselves are working for somebody else again within five years. Right. And uh, I think part of the reason for that is, I mean, things like poor marketing, not understanding the audience or the market or how to get your ideas and products and services from a, point A to point you know, Z in some cases. Um, and also this a sense that, of impatience. I think maybe one of the missing links for a lot of people is impatience. No, is patience. And, and I mean patience on the order of years. Mm-hmm. For some of this stuff, I, you know, remember Malcolm Gladwell, Mr. Tipping Point yes. saying that uh, mastery in any field of endeavor requires a minimum of 10,000 hours of dedicated practice. <laughs> I mean, I mean, here's the math on that. That means 90 minutes a day for 20 years. Right. Wow. You know, if you give up too soon, you're good. You're just you're going to give up too soon. Yeah, and, and also to, to be, like you said, having the journal to track your progress to see how far you come because maybe it's not about giving up, but there is um, importance to, to put on pivoting, right? Maybe yeah. you're doing something over and over and over again and it's not working. And how do you tweak it? It doesn't mean giving it up. How do you tweak it? And mm. one of the things that I do want to talk about, Greg, is how do you get support? Because one of the <laughs> elements that, that, that we learn, and both uh, Tony Marchante and I, with our you know, separate set of clients, our collective clients, the struggle with creative entrepreneurs is that you know, we don't know how to either ask for help or we don't know where to go for resources. But how critical, I mean, a successful business, successful relationship, successful life is not something we do alone. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm always, you know, I'm cautious of my own lone wolfhood, you know, my rugged individualist streak that makes it so that I want to you know, a freelancer, after all, was what somebody who had allegiance to no king and no kingdom. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's, there's a certain amount of strength in, in the independent mindset, but there's a certain amount of weakness in it, too. And I think that it's important that people don't isolate, mm-hmm. you know, with their ideas and their visions and their actions is that they draw on the power of community to help move them forward. Uh, in fact, in, in a lot of my workshops, I actually demonstrate the role with a group exercise, I demonstrate the role that community plays in the unfolding of an individual's sense of calling or specific calling in the world. And it's a beautiful demo. I mean, we'll do something like a brainstorming group where some individual person, what they call a focal person, gets a chance to see how powerful a community of people can be and people who don't even know them. You know, so I'm, I'm all about personal boards of advisors, dream teams, clearness committees like the Quakers have, brainstorming groups, just anything that helps you draw on the power of community. Now, what would you say to someone that comes to you and says, well, I don't want to share my creative ideas. It's revolutionary. It's visionary. Yeah. And I don't want to give it away. Someone's going to take my idea and run with it. Yeah. You know, I, I used to hear that a lot when I was... Um, uh, when I was a freelance writer, um, and uh, a couple of 
professionals said this to me. He said, when you hear a writer say, um, why, do, why would I want to send my book ideas to an editor? They'll just steal it. <laughs> you know, um, they say that that's the mark of an amateur right there. Um, there's only one person who can write it like you would anyway. And, right. I, I, you know, there's lots of ideas out there. Um, it's the execution. It's the individual and what they bring to it. Um, so th this notion that you're going to not share any of your ideas with the world because somebody might steal it. Uh, frankly, I think that's, um, that's a, that's, that can be a form of procrastination and avoidance that, that just it sounds like something else, but it's not. Gotcha. You know, I just, um, not that people don't steal other people's ideas, but, but using that as an excuse to not move forward, I think would be foolish. Right. No, I absolutely agree. But I wanted to get your perspective on that because that's what we hear a lot in the creative entrepreneur space. Mm -hmm. And it is this, you know, need to protect. And it's very similar to the energy and, you know, big on energy over here, the mm -hmm. energy around the word competition. You know, I don't want to contact that person. Doesn't make sense to connect with them because they do what I do, kinda, and then, and that's my competition. And that just, for me personally, it drives me nuts because I'm thinking, gosh, how many opportunities to collaborate and to find yes. the gaps and to see how you can support each other and reach out to a larger community so that you can create more change in the world, right? But I think that energy around, I don't want anyone to steal my, my ideas and I don't want to, to work with this person because they're just going to take my clients, mm. that um, really harms your progress as a person, as a human being, but it certainly doesn't help, I don't think, to evolve the business um, if you really want to have a business and not yeah. just a hobby. And I think it, it, it reaffirms the sense of scarcity and fear, and you don't want that to be um, you know, in the soil, as it were, when you're growing a business. Um, this, this, this kind of fear and anxiety all the time rather than throw it open, you know, open share, um, have some faith in yourself and your own resilience and your own power and your ability to collaborate. And uh, I mean, that's just my sense of it. I, like I said, I do understand people's concerns around that. Well, let me ask you also then, you know, in terms of running a creative business, um, how do you focus on the operational side, the business side of passionate work. Where do you, where do you get the support? How do you manage all of that? Well, for one thing, I, this is an equation I've noticed since uh, the first year that I left employment for self-employment, is that 50% of my time, and this is, goes back to 1984 now, all right? So that's 30 years. 50% um, of my time is spent working to get work. And this is as a freelance writer, all right, and as a teacher, because now I'm, I'm on the road 50, 75, or 100 days out of the year, depending on the year. But, but I set up most of those engagements. And so there's just something right there in terms of the operational necessities is I have to get behind that mm -hmm. rather than resent it. And, and because a lot of people do, they would oh, rather, just, especially those in the creative fields, in any field, they would rather just do their work rather than having to work to get work. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the thing is, it's just, it's a mindset. It is by that doing that 50% that I get to be self-employed. I get to be a writer, I get to be a teacher and to travel and to teach. Um, you know, it's by doing that that I get to do my work and I have to just keep remembering that when I'm immersed in the marketing part, which is not my favorite, <laughs> but by doing it, I get to do what I love and be what I love. And, uh, and I think that's one of the diagnostic tools, frankly, that people can use to determine whether this is the right work for them, that they and I've noticed this from a lot of people, is these are the people who do not resent the, the hard operational work that it takes to be, in this case, a writer or a teacher or self-employed as a, um, a therapist or a graphic artist or whatever, is that they, they almost have a kind of affection uh, or affinity for the, uh, the, all the mundane tasks. And by that, I mean worldly, not boring. Mundane just means worldly. Uh, tasks involved in pulling it off and bringing it to fruition. Um, and uh, I mean, anybody who's ever been in a band or been in a play knows that the amount of time you spend rehearsing 
compared to performing is like 90-10. You know, but it's the, the, it, I think it's passion that largely explains people's willingness to abide by an equation like that, where you practice the same lines or the same lyrics for thousands of hours for the ability to um, take it on a stage, what, 10% of the time? <laughs> right. But that's one of the diagnostic tools that says they're doing their right work in the world is that they don't mind that equation because it's part of getting to do what they love. That's fantastic. Well, you know, you've also written for the New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post, Psychology Today, Christian Science Monitor. I mean, I'm just read Reader's Digest. You um, also had a publication. You're the author of the Business of Writing, which is a Reader's Digest book. I mean, that's just the list of your messaging and your sharing and pouring your heart out there into the world to help us. Um, you know, what's it all for? What's the ultimate goal of spreading these powerful messages? I mean, you've been you've been sitting in you know as media guests for large networks, ABC, CNN, NPR, PBS. List goes on and on and on. And the question I have for you is why? Why? Oh, because I must. I mean, to some degree, I can't even explain that sense of urgency. But I. I just know that I feel that, I mean, this is, this gets down to the question of service. You know, um, I think one of the most beautiful things I ever ran across was a, um, a, a theologian named uh, Frederick Buchner. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a German word. So it's probably pronounced some other way, but he says that, that where your calling is and your sense of calling is the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Mm. And that has always been kind of an operational necessity for me to find that, that little sweet spot. And so for me, my deep gladness is writing and teaching and helping people take their lives back from all the suppressing, repressing, depressing forces of just life or culture, religion, schooling, parenting, etc. cetera. Um, the sense that life is so rich and we often settle for so little. And there's a way in which that personally breaks my heart. And so I operate from that place. And I also see the, the, you know, the place where the world is hungry and in need. Um, I see the, the hunger for aliveness in people. And I just respond to it. You know, uh, maybe it partly it does come from having watched as a, a very observant, sensitive kid two parents who didn't do what they wanted to do and that sense of yearning to keep getting back to it, you know? Um, and maybe part of my work is to keep my father in the chemistry lab down in the basement, you know, or to keep my mother at her creative writing rather than um, being a stockbroker, which is like the epitome of security over passion to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, she liked the people work part of it, but she was really an artist at heart, and I think left a lot of that behind. So uh, I think that's all of that's part of the why. I'm just, I'm moved by this dilemma in the world and feel like I've got part of my gift is, is helping in that particular arena. Well, I'm certainly grateful for the work that you do, um, you know, because having mentors like you traveling all over trying to, to reach people like us, and I say us as in all of us human beings, <laughs> um, it's really important to have that because if we're not getting that at home and everyone around us is so busy trying to make it through their own lives, who do we have to remind us that we are absolutely extraordinary as we are, that mm -hmm. we have everything that lives and breathes inside of us already to make us extraordinary. Right. And, and when that's not told or taught, we don't know it. That, because human beings survive by, you know, what's coming to us, how, how, how we're being um, supported, right? It's a, it's a human need, a community. And if we don't have that strong community or mentors that really believe that we can live an authentic life, you, they're, they're, we're just, we're not robots, right? We right. bleed and we have heart and we feel and there's energy in even a thought. Um, those things are if they're not taught, they're just not known. Yeah. And so we walk around with a lot of people who just don't know. And so they behave in ways that maybe those that are starting to know are starting to evolve and understand there's more out there for us. Yeah. Um, then there's judgment and there's this lack of, oh, how can they not get it? Or, oh, this person is so passionate, woo-woo stuff, it doesn't make sense. 
because <laughs> we're not all getting it. We're not we're not going to schools and getting you know the the education from the very very beginning of our educational career that this is all okay. This is real. This exists. Yeah, it's not just what's being taught at a curriculum level now at school. So, I commend you very much. I do want to talk a little bit about your books though because. You know, one of uh, my deep passions, I know a lot of people out in the world love to read, whether they listen to audiobooks or whether they read it and hold the books in their hands. Um, it's, a, it's critical to basically have people continue to share their hearts. So talk a little bit about your books, what they mean to you, what the hopes for these books are. Um, and again, for those that are listening, Callings is the first book, Finding and Following an Authentic Life, um, that was published by Random House. And Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion, was published by Penguin Publishing. So talk a little bit more about um, you know, why using these books as a way to reach people. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely my way of one of my primary ways of reaching people. Uh, I think really, again, what I'm just after is uh, not just f helping people follow a passion, which frankly is a lot of what the Callings book was about. It's the vocational piece, largely, um, but helping people develop the skill of passion, which is I think largely what Vital Science is about. And it's one of the ways that I also distinguish between the books when people ask. Um, you know, Vital Signs is about kind of a skill or a stance that you take toward the world that uh, helps you just simply live more passionately in a general sense, not just in a vocational sense. So um, I think uh, between the two books, I'm kind of covering the waterfront on the subject. Um, but it's really just... Um, and one of the most gratifying pieces of feedback I ever get and I've ever gotten about both of those books, uh, and even the first book, This Business of Writing, was thank you for telling it like it really is. <laughs> I've, I've appreciated that feedback as much as almost anything. Um, thanks for not pulling your punches and making it sound like five easy steps. It's easy. You can, anybody can do it. Um, but telling it like it really is the hard human work. You know, what if you come from a background like yours, you know, and, and security is of the utmost importance and you build your lives um, around that. And at some point you realize, you know, this isn't actually the only game in town. Now what? <laughs> right. That is the big question. How do you make that shift? You don't just flip a switch. No, not if your whole life you believe that to be the only way to, exactly. to survive that I can, you know, sustain and then and, and I'll have peace in my life. And <laughs> and yet, you know, there was no peace because there was a, a lot of pieces of me missing. Mm, exactly. And how do you reclaim the pieces that are missing? I did a consultation with a woman and included in the Vital Signs book. And she said that ever since she was a little kid, her parents sent her to her room for any displays of negative emotions. So tears, frustration, anger, I mean, you know, what kid doesn't have that in abundance? And so what, what she's coming to me for at this point is she's 40 years old. She is feeling after a lifetime of repressing, of course, half her emotional repertoire, she's feeling blocked mm -hmm. from being her full passionate self. And I, I, the one that she knows she's going to need in order to become the healer that she intuits herself to be and build um, a, a vocation around that and a life around that. So here she is. She's 40 years old. She says, I think my mission in life right now is, and she, it's a beautiful phrase, soul retrieval. Beautiful. Taking yourself back from all the forces that would pull it, siphon it from us. And that's a lot of what I'm after in the books is strategies for how to do that, stories of people who've again, done the, the, the hard mortal work of reclaiming their, their vitalities and uh, retrieving their souls. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you, Greg, so much. I mean, this with this conversation could go on and on because we tr <laughs> we truly are like minded. It's mm -hmm. it's something that I'm truly passionate about. Like you, personal calling for me. Personal experiences have led me to really help people also reclaim their passion and their purpose, to live it fully, to embrace the brilliance that they are already, that you don't have to borrow anything, you don't have to fake anything, <laughs> you mm -hmm. just have to understand what you already have 
and foster it and nurture it and bring it back to life. Couldn't so, agree more. Thank you so much. Well, how can people learn more about you? Where do they go to get information, buy your books? Oh, uh, well, World Headquarters is pretty much the website. Um, that's, uh, you know, it's www.greglavoy.com, two Gs on Greg. And, uh, I mean, it's all there. My speaking schedule, my books, excerpts, uh, I've got these, like you said, these, some wonderful resources on, um, on the website, including something called the wow page. Yes, I saw that. Isn't that great? I just <laughs> that love that. Awesome. Just all pictures of things that make me, my mouth drop open. So lots of ways of appreciating passion. Well, for our listeners, you know, we want to thank Greg for being with us. Please check out the website. I actually spent several hours on there finding <laughs> these excerpts to read to you today, and there's so much more. Um, I'd also really highly uh, recommend buying the books. I will be doing so myself because I got the chance to read the excerpts, and I want more, Greg. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your insights, sharing your passion and your love being vulnerable to share your story of, of your childhood and what led you to the work that you do. Um, as we share and we resonate with the world, we come together as a stronger community of humans. So thank you for that. My pleasure. And, uh, and thank you for being one of the soul tenders. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us for another awesome episode with an amazing guest um, of Creative Entrepreneur Buzz Podcast. Uh, you can actually subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. You can hear us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. You can also go to our website. Again, it's Creative Entrepreneur Buzz Podcast, and we look forward to speaking to you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Greg. Thanks. CE Buzz helps creatives sharpen their entrepreneurial mindset so their businesses can launch, grow, and collaborate. 